Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Sahana Bhavatu Sahano Bunaktu Sahaviryam Karavavai Ejasvinavati Tamastu Mavid Vishavahai Om Shanti 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 May Brahman protect us. May he guide us and give us strength and right understanding. May love and harmony be with us all. Peace, peace, peace. So our topic is the spiritual practices and the brain. The mind is really our chief instrument of spiritual practice. Uh, Reading some quotes from the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, we find Swami Premananda saying, All bondage is in the mind, and all freedom is in the mind. Swami Ramakrishnananda says, The more we try to fix our minds on God, the more quickly shall we forget ourselves, and the more quickly shall we reach freedom. The best way to do this is not to think of ourselves in any way, and to try to keep our minds on the presence of God. And in the Eternal Companion, Swami Brahmananda says, He is beyond the reach of mind and intellect, and yet, if one sincerely prays to him, he becomes attainable to the pure mind. The body and mind are closely related. When the body is disturbed, the mind also becomes disturbed. Swami Shivananda, When the mind becomes free from impression and desires, it cannot strictly be called the mind any longer. It becomes synonymous with the universal intelligence, the supreme energy, or Brahman. And we know that emotions also play a part in our spiritual practices, especially fear and love. Regarding fear, Swami Shivananda says, once the mind becomes absorbed in his lotus feet, there is no fear anymore. The mind can be absolutely free from fear if it thinks about God. And regarding love, Swami Shivananda again says, you have to get your mind fixed. Develop a love for God in your heart. Be earnest and call on him. Then you will find that everything will be fulfilled in time. Make your mind ready. When the flower blooms, the bee comes of itself. So we're going to see some of these uh, elements come up in the talk today. We're going to see how various kinds of spiritual practices have influences on the brain that really do reduce uh, the fear mechanisms in the brain and increase the love dimensions of the brain and how we are making the mind ready for spiritual experience through our spiritual practices. So we're going to be looking at when we use our minds for our spiritual practices, how does it affect our, our body and brain? How do the spiritual practices affect the brain, and how does the brain then allow us to have spiritual experiences? Now, you see, a materialist might ask the question quite differently, because they'll be coming from a standpoint that religion is false and there isn't anything called God. 
And so they would be asking, why do so many people engage in religious practices in the first place when religions don't seem to be rational and all the religions aren't the same? But we don't have that problem because we're coming from a, this assumption that uh, there really is a spiritual realm and that our true nature is one with that spiritual nature. And uh, our spiritual practices lead us closer and closer to that. So our questions are a little different. But we still have this mysterious connection between the brain-body and the mind. Uh, mind and brain are sometimes loosely used in somewhat the same way. And yet we usually like to think of the mind as being the non-material part of the functioning, whereas the brain is the organ through which the mind operates. But you see, again, a materialist has this dilemma is how do you get something, if there is anything non-material, how do you get it to interact with the material? <laughs> and so this becomes a problem. But uh, somehow they do interact. And there's some interesting things that we should note. This uh, is sort of just a summary of like a whole other lecture on the, the difference between mind and brain and the nature of consciousness. But it's interesting to note that there's no single brain area that's active when we're conscious and idle when we're asleep or not conscious in the terms of a materialist. Within each neuron, the neurons are all made up of molecules, and it's estimated that the molecules in these neurons are replaced up to 10,000 times in the average lifespan. And yet we have a continuous sense of self that is stable over time. So if somehow this sense of self is coming out of this material uh, in the brain, it's difficult to explain how it can be so stable when all the actual molecules have been changed. All the materials used to express the pattern have disappeared and been replaced, and yet the pattern still exists. And how do we account for neuroimaging studies that show that human subjects can actually self-regulate their emotions by concentrating on them? We have quite a bit of evidence from biofeedback and so forth that various processes can be controlled by our uh, own intention, self-regulation. You see, a non-materialist view can account for these things, whereas the materialist view cannot. So we're assuming that our mind and our brain and our bodies are all really just different expressions of the one infinite, undivided, unchanging reality of Brahman being experienced through this veil of maya. Well, as far as brain activity and related bodily functions... What is it that we can measure scientifically? Well, we can measure brain waves, whether our brain waves are in the alpha state or the beta state or the theta state or the delta state. We can see which parts of the brain is using more uh, oxygen, where the blood flow is going in the brain. And we can see levels of neurotransmitters, most easily in the blood, but it's, it's, it's possible to also get some idea of what's happening at neurotransmitters in the brain, although that's a little more difficult. So we can measure these kinds of things, which we expect have to do with brain functioning and ultimately the mind. So there are these connections between the mind, the brain, and the body. Now, another interesting question regarding spiritual practices is, 
they seem to predate civilization. And again, a materialist has trouble understanding. Why on earth have human beings engaged in religious practices for so long? And they can kind of understand, well, they didn't understand the mysteries of the world now, we're scientific and we understand all these things, so uh, we don't have need for religion. Uh, but when you find that these religious practices even predate civilization, uh, that implies that there's something very innate to the human nature that drives us to be religious. And of course, from the Vedantic perspective, that is again easy to understand. Our true nature is divine, and so we seek to connect with that true nature. Well, what is it that people report when doing spiritual practices? What is it they say uh, are the reasons that they engage in spiritual practices? Well, there there have been online surveys to that kind of thing, and what they report is that there's a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of calmness. Uh, they have more clarity of thought. Uh, their health improves. They have greater strength of will. And so these are some of the things that we're going to be looking at and trying to explain as to how spiritual practices can bring these effects about. Now, of course, we've been told that they bring these things about over and over again. For example, again, Swami Brahmananda in the Eternal Companion says, by constantly performing japam, the mind can easily be made calm and steady, and finally it will lose itself in God. Therefore, I ask you to perform japam regularly and often, and at the same time, meditate on the chosen ideal. This combined practice brings quick success, and we'll be seeing why that kind of combined practice brings success. He also mentions that one's health will improve if one meditates. Now, in addition to these uh, kinds of effects, we also know, and perhaps some people have been fortunate enough to experience uh, very deep meditative states, and we have the reports of the mystics to go on, and they say that there is this loss of a sense of self, or putting it another way, an expanded awareness, uh, a merging of pairs of opposites, uh, an understanding of things at an intuitive level, a sense of oneness with all things, or oneness with God, or being in God's presence, or an understanding of the meaning of life. These are the, the deep kinds of experiences that mystics report. So we're going to be looking at how these uh, effects might correlate with various things happening in the brain. So we're going to be looking at various things. So we're going to have to just remind ourselves of a few terms that we're going to be seeing a lot of. One of the things that we can measure in the brain and in the blood are neurotransmitters. And the common ones are dopamine and serotonin, which are probably most often looked at in studies on meditation practices. Glutamate, acetylcholine, GABA, cortisol, and adrenaline. So the dopamine, serotonin, and GABA are probably the ones most frequently uh, measured and mentioned in the studies. Uh, glutamate is an activating neurotransmitter, as is acetylcholine. They're, they're mentioned occasionally. Cortisol and adrenaline have to do with your fight-and-flight mechanism, which will also be discussed. So what we find is that we can correlate these neurotransmitters with various mental states that people report. This is one of the difficulties in these studies is that you have to rely on what people are reporting, and that's the whole thing we're trying to do, is connect 
our experiences with things that are going on in the brain and in the body. Well, it finds out that there is a certain profile of these neurotransmitters that's directly related to being in pain or being depressed. Uh, There's also specific uh, relationships to your immune system and how well the immune system is functioning. And similarly, different neurotransmitter profiles come up when someone is experiencing great joy or feeling very comfortable or relaxed or in the process of some sort of celebration. So all of these different kinds of moods and emotional states seem to relate to different kinds of neurotransmitter profiles. Another thing that we're going to be looking at is the autonomic nervous system, which regulates all of our automatic kind of functions like digestion, respiration, heart rate, immune function, uh, peristalsis, and so forth. But most importantly, it regulates our stress response. And there are two branches. You have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branch. The sympathetic has to do with our fight or flight mechanism, and the parasympathetic with sort of the calm and connect or rest and digest or chill and bliss out (laughs) kind of functions. For the uh, sympathetic branch, we find that there's an increase in cortisol and adrenaline and a reduction in cholinesterase and a suppression of our natural endorphins called beta-endorphins. In the other system, the parasympathetic system, we find that there's a reduction in fear, digestion uh, occurs better, there's a reduction for cravings, and an increased ability for healing functions to take place. So these two systems are both, of course, essential for our well-being, but in our modern life, the sympathetic nervous system tends to stay activated too much of the time. We're sort of, sort of constantly in a state of activating our fight-and-flight mechanism as we Uh, drive down crowded freeways and deal with uh, crowded situations and all sorts of deadlines and uh, that kind of thing. All of these things add stress to us. And there's so many of these things that occur throughout the day that that system tends to stay turned on, especially for somebody that has what we call a type A personality, uh, where they're constantly on the go and constantly trying to achieve more and so forth. So it puts that system on the on switch, and it's hard to turn it off. And what we're going to find is that our spiritual practices help to turn that system off and turn the parasympathetic system back on again. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, several different kinds of spiritual practices that have effects on our brain and what kinds of effects they have. Visualizations, where you actually picture something in your mind, uh, breathing, Uh, various kinds of meditation and prayer practices, which would include various kinds of uh, using mantras and chanting and so forth that can either be thought of as in conjunction with or separate from uh, meditation and prayer, and various movement-based practices such as yoga or qigong. So these are the kinds of things that we're going to be looking at. So let's talk about visualizations. Uh, In a visualization, a person focuses one's attention on a a particular outcome. Now, some of the experiments that have been done have been done on physiological outcomes, such as improved health or um, 
calming down the heart rate or something of that nature. But there does seem to be evidence that having an intention and visualizing a process happening in the body actually does work and does increase the physiological functioning. Therefore, it's highly probable that the intentions to circulate the the key energy and various kinds of qigong exercises or meditations or the in yogic meditations of the kundalini visualizing the kundalini energy uh, rising through the chakras that those visualizations actually do have an effect on your body and hence on your mind both of those kinds of visualizations interestingly enough are focused on the brain, and it is thought that they're probably activating things like the thalamus and the hippocampus areas. Now, in breathing exercises, it's found that the very simple, coherent breathing, where you just simply take a, a very deep breath in, and then an approximately the same type, exhale, and you do that so that it comes out to be about maybe four and a half to six full breaths in a minute, that this kind of coherent breathing, or full yogic breathing it's sometimes called, is sort of a sweet spot where the electrical rhythms of the body all kind of fall into sync. And they found a tenfold improvement in heart rate variability, which is a measure of stress resilience. In other words, if you're faced with a stressful situation, your heart rate is going to tend to increase. How quickly does that come back down? to a resting state afterwards. So if somebody cuts you off in the freeway, uh, is your heart still pounding 15 minutes after that? (laughs) Or have you been able to say, oh, that was a nice opportunity for forgiveness and I can just forget about it. Uh, But yogic breathing has been shown to help this kind of stress resilience. It finds that it opens the capillaries to, to maximize blood flow and get more oxygen into the body. It's what we would call a, a trickle-up effect on the, on the mind, where you're doing something with the body and the effect trickles up to the mind. They found measurable reduction in anxiety and depression, and it's thought that it might be in part due to the stimulation of what's called the vagus nerve, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so if you can activate the parasympathetic nervous system, that helps to down the sympathetic nervous system. So all these things are sort of inter- interrelated. It was also found that this kind of relaxation training activated the natural killer cells, Uh, while control groups uh, that was not happening. So this deep breathing is one of the very important things that one can do. And it's very simple, and it's something that you can combine with doing japam and meditation, uh, simply getting into that nice rhythmic breathing. Now, this is not the same as the more complicated pranayama techniques, which, of course, can be dangerous if they're not properly done under the guidance of a teacher. In cases like that, the trickle-up effect (laughs) uh, can be too intense and can cause some kinds of derangements if they're not done exactly properly. Now, our main practices, of course, uh, in many spiritual traditions, as well as this one, are meditation practices, uh, which might include uh, repeating a mantra or chanting or repeating a prayer 
over and over again, depending on the tradition or your particular instructions. But uh, no matter what it is, it involves some sort of focused attention. Uh, and it can bring feelings of great calmness or perhaps uh, feelings of bliss and also a diminished sense of self, sort of a, where you lose a little bit of awareness of the space and time. You're not aware of how fast time has been passing. And of course, ultimately, in the profound effects of deep meditations, you might find that there is a complete loss of self and emerging with oneness or a feeling of, of ecstasy. Prayer is similar to meditation, except that it involves uh, more of a focused attention on the verbal aspects. And the verbal aspects can be both, say, repetitions of a prayer, which would be more similar to doing japam, or can be more conversational. So prayer usually has a particular goal of connecting with a personal god. Meditation may or may not be related to a personal god. So you have some of these differences. But we still find that the studies on prayer also find that various positive effects. For example, there's a decrease in heart rate, decrease in blood pressure, decreased in body metabolism, and various hormonal changes. What we find is that there's an increase in serotonin, an increase in dopamine, uh, GABA, and a decrease in cortisol and norepinephrine. So we've got the serotonin going up, the dopamine going up, the GABA going up, and the cortisol and norepinephrine going down. So serotonin and dopamine have to do with feeling good. <laughs> GABA has to do with being calm. It's a neurotransmitter that tends to quiet things down. And the cortisol and the norepinephrine tend to speed things up and get you hyped up. And so that is, makes total sense, that that's the kinds of things we would notice. In a PET scan, it was noticed that the central dopamine release was increased during yoga meditation. And another magnetic resonance spectroscopy study showed that the gamma aminobutyric acid, or GABA, was also increased during various kinds of yoga meditation practices. So again, we have this increase in one of the neurotransmitters that make you feel good and one that makes you feel calmed down. So the findings in general indicate that long-term practice of mindfulness exercises leads to a certain emotional stability. Another study showed that meditation can cultivate positive emotions, where the parts of the brain that are linked to empathy are increased and activated. There was an interesting study on a meditation technique called kirtan kriya and memory. They took uh, older individuals with memory problems, uh, but no prior history of meditation. And they taught this rather simple little meditation, uh, not giving them any spiritual significance, but they said to uh, repeat the phrase, sa-ta-na-ma, touching four fingers in turn. And they were told to do it two minutes aloud, and then two minutes in a whisper, four minutes silently, then repeating to two minutes as a whisper, and repeating it two minutes aloud. So this was a 12-minute practice. The control group was told to listen to music for 12 minutes. What they found at the end of an eight-week study was that there was a 10% improvement in memory tasks 
which correlated with changes that they found in the frontal lobes and in the thalamus, which are both areas which are related to uh, concentration and memory. There was a 10 to 20% reduction in stress anxiety and depression and fatigue. And these changes uh, were correlated with activities in the lymphic system and various emotional areas of the brain. So your brain has many different areas. So we've just talked about the the frontal lobes and uh, the uh, thalamus and the limbic system. The limbic system is a complicated system that has all sorts of little structures in it. And we probably don't have time to go into all those. So what they found was that there was this increase in the frontal lobes, not just during the practice, but even at rest. So the spiritual practice wasn't something that affected the brain just while you were doing it, but it actually had lasting results. Now remember that the the frontal lobe is right behind the forehead, and it's a very important part of the brain that helps us to concentrate and focus our attention on whatever task we have at hand. So it makes sense that if you practice concentrating, your area that helps you concentrate will get stronger. It's like working a muscle. Uh, The more you exercise it, the better it gets. So it's interesting that we can actually sort of exercise the brain and make improvements in it. Now, the other interesting thing is that this attention-focusing area can then start blocking things that are moving back and forth within other parts of the brain. One area that is part of the limbic system is involved in that, and that's the hippocampus. So, I mean, we've all probably experienced that even on a regular basis where you get so engrossed in, in a novel or in studying or in a show that you forget things that are going around, or you're not as aware of what's going on around you. And hopefully we all experience that to some degree in meditation, too, where we end up tuning things out that's going on around us. Now, one of the very interesting studies was done on Franciscan nuns doing centering prayer. Centering prayer was developed by Father Thomas Keating as a a way of incorporating a, a deeper spiritual practice for Christians. This was a group of cloistered Franciscan nuns, and the study was done in 93 at the University of Pennsylvania. And so the kind of study they did was a PET scan where they inject a a radioactive tracer, which sort of gives an instant snapshot of the brain at a particular instant in time. So they had to let the nuns go into meditation. They'd already hooked them up with the IV, Uh, They just didn't inject anything in it. So they let them get into this nice meditative state. And then they injected the uh, tracer. And then later they could read the scan. So what it showed was that there were changes in the brain that involved a sense of self and the ability to focus, as well as the emotions. So it had a visible effect on the brain. And the interesting thing was that this part of the brain that has to do with the sense of self, that's the parietal lobe, was quieting down. And so as the part of the brain that was focusing and concentrating, the frontal lobe, was uh, being activated, that was triggering this quieting down or shutting down of other parts of the brain, and specifically this area that orients you in space and time, gives you a sense that I'm this and there's this world out here, that kind of area of the brain quieted down, and that would explain why uh, the nuns experienced this feeling of deep peace and a sense of, of uh, oneness of an experience. 
There was another eight-week study done at Harvard that showed that meditation literally rebuilds the gray matter in the brains. Again, this was an eight-week study. And they took magnetic resonance imaging of 16 participants two weeks prior to the study and then after the study was completed. And what they found was that there was an increase in the density of gray matter in the hippocampus, which is known to be important for learning and memory. That's that area way down there at the bottom. The participants uh, did meditation for just 30 minutes a day, but they used various things such as guided meditations and so forth, as well as non-judgmental awareness of sensations and so forth. So it's fascinating to see that the brain actually is rather plastic. It can be molded and that our meditation practices play an active role in molding our brains. It's also interesting that when you look at all of these different studies, which of course we don't have time to do in an hour lecture, but when you've looked at a lot of them, you find out that the kind of meditation technique doesn't seem to matter that much as long as someone's able to be in a comfortable position and uh, they're able to focus their mind and so forth, that uh, the meditation seems to work and have various effects. Okay, they also saw in some of these studies an increase in activity of the central structure called the thalamus. So the thalamus is a, a very key structure in the brain that helps to connect different parts of the brain and helps to sort of interpret all the different kinds of sensory information that we're getting and that's coming in the brain. So it's kind of a coordinating section of the brain. The fact that the thalamus is substantially increased tells us that Meditation is an active practice, uh, and the idea that you're supposed to just kind of turn your brain off really isn't uh, the correct way to think about meditation. You're not just uh, trying to quiet the mind. I mean, we use that term, quiet the mind, but that's really more in the sense of focusing on one thing, that most of these practices that were studied had to do with focusing on one thing, not on trying to make the mind empty. Now, there was another interesting study that, uh, you know, just as in the Lord's Prayer, it says, uh, lead us not into temptation. Well, they found that prayer actually does seem to increase somebody's ability to resist temptation. That uh, they did some kind of funny studies indicating that prayer buffered people against what's called cognitive depletion. For example, if you've had a really hard day and you're exhausted and you've been working really, really hard, it's a lot harder to, say, stick to your diet or not take that extra drink or something of that nature because your cognitive resources have been depleted. And so th they did two different tests. One of them was this uh, Stroop test, which some of you might have heard about. The, the Stroop test has to do with naming the color of ink that these words are written in. So you're supposed to say red, green, blue, orange. And that's not that easy to do because the first one that's red has the word blue. <laughs> so it's easy to start getting confused. If you're tired and your cognitive resources are depleted, it becomes even more difficult. So they did various studies with people in various states of cognitive depletion and tested it on the Stroop test. Then they asked half of the group to 
engage in some sort of prayer activity for maybe five or ten minutes to pray on any particular topic that they wanted to. Didn't matter what, just pray. And sure enough, their ability to do the Stroop test was improved. They also did another test where they wanted to see if people could stifle their emotions. That's again, take some cognitive resources to stifle your emotions, to say not laugh at something that's funny when it's not appropriate to laugh at something that's funny, or not cry when it would be embarrassing or something of that nature. So they showed people funny videos and they asked them to stifle all of their emotions while they were watching it. And sure enough, again, after praying, they were able to do that more effectively than they were before. So prayer seems to have an ability to recharge our cognitive resources. And there could be a couple of reasons for this. They studied quite a few different hypotheses, but it turned out that uh, the one that seemed to be the most uh, accurate in matching up with the results was that prayer was kind of a social interaction with God, you could say. That Praying to God was putting you in kind of a social relationship with God, and that this relationship seemed to help you to avoid temptations or to be able to perform better on certain cognitive tasks. So having these brief social interactions with deities tends to be very helpful. And of course, that would go along with our idea of trying to keep a a recollectedness that God is like our eternal companion, Uh, For example, Brother Lawrence in his writings of thinking that God is always right there with him working and he's he's always got this little conversation going on with God. And that's a very good spiritual technique to just feel that God is with us. And so if you're having some difficulties, you say, oh, God, this is is a tough one. You're going to have to help me through this or whatever it is. So you just have this little conversation, running dialogue going on with God throughout the day. And there really is evidence that this kind of thing does help us get through difficult days. Swami Saradananda, another direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, says, if the mind continues to be unsteady, pray to the Lord. Pray, Lord, kindly make my mind steady. Now know for certain that he hears whatever you say and knows whatever passes through your minds. If the mind does not become steady, pray to him fervently. Lord, make my mind calm. Know that the master hears your words and understands your feelings. Whatever you ask of him earnestly, you will get. All right, so we also have quite a few studies on using mantras, and almost all of them have to do with using the mantra OM. And what it's found is that concentrating on OM gives a combination of both mental alertness and physiological rest. This ties along with these other studies that show an increased activity in the frontal lobe, our concentration area, and an increase in the parasympathetic system, which allows the physiology to relax. So it's not the brain so much that's being relaxed, (laughs) it's your body that's being relaxed because the brain is being focused on one particular thing. Studies have shown that chanting OM helps you get rid of negativity. It creates a positive vibration in the body which seems to attract positivity into our lives. A few years ago, scientists conducted a study where participants who had never chanted OM were asked to chant it for a few minutes and their chants were recorded. 
The time frequency analysis showed irregular waveforms indicating an unsteady mind when they started the experiment, and after a few days of chanting OM, the experiment was repeated and the time frequency analysis indicated much improved waveforms with regular spacing and almost perfect symmetry and harmony. So these participants had achieved dramatic improvements in focus, concentration, and steadiness, and also found themselves to be more at peace and witnessing a reduction in stress, and they felt they could remain more calm all the time. So just a a very few days of chanting OM seems to have profound effects. Now, as far as uh, movement-based exercises like yoga and qigong, these have also been shown to have shifts in the various neurotransmitters. It's found that the noradrenaline and the dopamine tend to increase. Uh, So the qigong and the yoga exercises seem to quiet the mind and relax the body and induce a neurotransmitter profile that is conducive to healing. Now, another interesting research uh, paper was on speaking in tongues, which is not something that we we hear a lot about, but some of you may have had friends that have experienced that, or perhaps you've been to a Pentecostal church and experienced it or seen it on TV or something of that nature. And there's always this feeling, well, they're just faking this to get, get attention or something. And for everything that's genuine, there are probably a few people that fake it. But interestingly enough, they were able to gather quite a few people that had this ability to speak in tongues which is where the person seems to lose control and start babbling with unintelligible sounds. They've done analysis of the sounds, and it doesn't relate to any language. It's not like Chinese or some ancient language that we could study. So they don't know exactly what the sounds represent, but when they study the sounds of it, that's what they find, is that it doesn't relate to language as we know it. So. Professor Andrew Newberg, who's one of the foremost researchers in a lot of these areas of the brain and spiritual practices, got several people, and he reports specifically about one of them. He gives the general conclusions about the whole group, but he just related the experiences of one of them. And he said that, you know, after explaining to her what they were going to do, they used the PET scan again, where they inject the radioactive tracer. They first had her hooked up to the IV, and then they had her just do gospel singing. And while she was singing, they injected her with a tracer and then got a kind of a a picture of what her brain was doing, what areas were active, and that kind of thing. So then in another session, they allowed her to slip into uh, speaking in tongues. And after she'd been in that state for a few minutes, again, they would inject her and then read the results. So I'll just read a little bit of his description. She says, at first, she did more gospel singings in English, but then she slipped into something I'd never heard before. It was just for a few seconds, but it sounded like some weird language. Then it occurred again and lasted a little longer. After a few minutes, the only sound coming out of her mouth was speaking in tongues. After about 10 minutes of speaking in tongues, I injected her and let her speak in tongues for about 10 more minutes before scanning her. The scan showed some very interesting findings. One was that the frontal lobes, the part of the brain that makes us feel in control of our actions and words, actually shut down. So in this case, we've got something a little bit different than we did in prayer and meditation. 
So this frontal lobe is shutting down. So the person's experience that they are not in control is accurate from a, a brain physiological aspect. The scans showed increased activity in the thalamus and basal ganglia. Amazingly, when the subject was speaking in tongues, she had tears coming down her face and was oblivious to everything around her. When she stopped, she returned quickly to the pleasant and intelligent-sounding woman I had met at the beginning of the study. So, again, this kind of experience seems to be a, a genuine shift in the way the brain is working. Now, that has a, all sorts of interesting questions that one can ask about that kind of thing. Is, uh, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Uh, how does one control it? Uh, uh, is this really God speaking through her or is it just some sort of derangement or so forth? So you can still ask all sorts of questions. But it was very interesting that the experience that they report is actually reflected in the brain physiology. And at least these people were not faking it. Another interesting aspect of these studies was they were wondering if having a spiritual experience had a direct impact on the brain in a lasting way. Now, we've already found that meditation practices make lasting changes in the brain, but how about an intense religious experience? Someone who has perhaps uh, felt like they've had a vision of God or some sort of transformational experience like that or a near-death experience— uh, what they found was that meditating on, say, the light of the near-death experience increased activity in the prefrontal cortex, the right superior parietal lobe, and the insula. Uh, Carmelite nuns were asked to relive the most intense mystical experiences of their lives. This caused an increase in the activation, again, of the orbital frontal cortex, the temporal cortex, the parietal lobes, and several other areas. But what they found was that the people trying to relive these experiences had to focus on a sense of self. So calming that area down did not happen, at least in the beginning. But it could happen later on as they started reliving the experience. But that at first, they had to orient themselves in space and time back then at the experience in order to then get into the feelings uh, that they had experienced at that time. Now, another thing that we uh, really don't have time to, to talk about too much is rituals. Rituals are a big part of spiritual practice. We attend arities and pujas. We listen to people chanting and so forth. Uh, how do these things generate uh, changes within us? Why do we continue to come to religious services? Well, it turns out that uh, this has to do with our body's response to rhythms and our connecting to rhythmic patterns that have existed through generations and throughout time. So, for example, when we're doing a puja, we're in some sense connecting to all the people in the world that are doing puja about that time. We're also connecting to the cycle of people doing pujas, either on a daily basis or if it's like Durga Puja on an annual basis. And so there's this connection through time and space with other beings. Collectively, uh, you have a whole group of people that are in the presence of a particular spiritual exercise. And so there's a, a group dynamic where the rhythmic patterns of the thoughts of all the people begin to get into sync. Now, you might think, well, you know, I'm not doing RIT or I'm not doing the puja. 
But in a sense, you are, because you're watching somebody doing the puja or doing arati. And we have in our brain neurons called mirror neurons, like mirror, mirror on the wall, that kind of mirror. And mirror neurons allow you to experience what's happening that you're seeing, the things that you're seeing. So they mirror to a certain extent what's happening in the person you're watching. So that's why we get excited when we're watching an athletic game or the Olympics or something of that nature, uh, because there's part of us that's experiencing what that person is experiencing at the same time, or we get all emotional when uh, we are watching a TV show and somebody dies or something. Uh, so our mirror neurons allow us to experience the things that we're seeing and hearing in our environment. And that's part of the power of rituals. And that's, of course, one of the main functions of spiritual practices. There's so many interesting questions that one can ask. One could spend a lifetime studying these things. But it appears that different spiritual practices can have similar effects because they all seem to have to do with concentrating on something. Uh, so if you're doing a prayer, it may activate some of the verbal areas in your brain, whereas if you're meditating on a form, it's going to activate different parts of the visual system uh, as opposed to the language areas. And so you get these different kinds of areas of the brain lighting up, but they're all focusing on something and they all help to quiet down the other areas of the brain, which are what you might call the distracting areas of the brain, or the ones that don't allow us to experience the deeper levels of this uh, manifest universe. To me, this is the way I think about it, because some people would say, well, you know, spiritual experiences are just some sort of abnormal brain state. You know, uh, there's even been a group of psychologists at UCLA that went through all the saints uh, and diagnosed them with various <laughs> mental problems. You know, this one's got schizophrenia, and this one's manic depressive, and this one, <laughs> you know, this one's having temporal lobe seizures, and so forth. So, uh, to me, we're endowed with sense organs and a brain, and under normal circumstances, they give us a working picture, but a rather limited picture of reality. And again, that's a topic for all of the lecture, is how limited our perception of reality really is and how easily it can be fooled. But you know that we can change our perception of the universe to some extent. For example, I, I put on glasses in the morning so I can see things clearly. Uh, that changes my perception. Uh, otherwise, I think the normal thing is that everything's blurry. Uh, I can use telescopes to see distant objects or microscopes to see small objects. I can use night goggles to see things in the infrared or take pictures of things in the ultraviolet and find out what it looks like in that way. So there's all this information in the world out there that we're really not processing on a normal basis because it's not that necessary for us to function on a normal basis. But if we do spiritual practices, it allows our brains to become in a state where we can perceive things at a deeper, more profound level. So to me, it's simply making the mind ready. As we saw that the comments of the direct disciples, that's what they're saying. You're doing these spiritual practices to make the mind pure, to make the mind ready to receive these things. 
So I hope that uh, having some understanding that there are actual studies out there that show that our spiritual practices uh, do help us to train our brains in ways which will ultimately help us to experience the deeper nature, the spiritual nature of reality is motivating because you know sometimes it's hard. You get feeling like, eh, things aren't quite happening as fast as I want them to and so forth. But they really are. And you can't really do a double-blind experiment with yourself, you know, and <laughs> take three weeks and meditate and then take the same three weeks and not meditate. You can't do that. And the next three weeks is not going to be the same as the first three weeks because you might have all sorts of different things happening in your life. So there's never any way to test to see how things are going. But I think this is very reassuring that as we do our spiritual practices, that things really are happening for the better in our brains. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purname Vavashishate Om Shanti 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 Filled with Raman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is, from Brahman all, yet is it still the same. Peace, peace, peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.